Frightening Tales. I am your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man, Red Man, president of the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club and investigator for Burgers. I am joined by my co-host and fellow Burgers investigator, the man with the 12th degree black belt in Jitsu and master flamethrower, Tommy. Pew pew. I see what's happening there. What? They don't have a clue. Who? The government. They never have a clue. Well, it's starting to come out they know about aliens and UFOs because apparently, according to a whistleblower, we have one intact, we've had one for a while, and we're reverse engineering it. Well, that's not a shocker. I mean, half these shows we see on TV are dedicated say the government knows they're just hiding it, so they're just going to go ahead and admit it now. Well, they didn't actually admit it, admit it. You got this uh, whistleblower... And then you have the new report from the National... Uh, well, I really need to learn this uh, dude's title here. There's too many government organizations, I believe. Too many acronyms to remember. But from the director of the National Intelligence, the 2022 annual report on ident- unidentified aerial phenomenon. We've got that report to look into tonight. Basically, it's a 12-page report of uh, Nothing. And I do mean nothing. There's probably some top secret, unredacted, nice little special report that uh, the senators all got. Which I'm glad to see there's a lot of senators uh, decided that they need to take a more um, hands-on approach with the UFOs. Yeah. And meanwhile, you got places like Wired Magazine saying, Oh, they love, our senators love a good conspiracy theory because that's all they ever run on is conspiracy theories. Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy that uh, the moment this guy comes out, you got the New York Times and everybody runs out to debunk not only this guy, but the report and then uh, all the politicians who uh, agree with it. And uh, it, it's it's a nice smear tactic, something that they've been doing for years. We also got uh, some great stuff lined up for you tonight on this episode of Frightening Tales. It's a double feature tonight, The Day the Earth Stood Still and War of the Worlds. I figured we'd bring out the really good old-fashioned radio broadcasts of these two great shows. And this is the original broadcast of War of the Worlds. And when we start playing that one, I promise you we will not interrupt War of the Worlds. It is just that good, that fun, and um, you can see why there was a bit of hysteria surrounding that program. Uh, I think the day the earth stood still would have probably got the same reaction if they didn't know about it. Another really good radio broadcast. We're also going to talk some uh, alien movies, some of our favorite scariest ones, and some of the ones that we really liked as a child, so they're not as scary, but they were fun to begin with. And no, it's not Mac and me, one of the worst movies out there. I also got a little clip for you from Edward Murrow's report on UFOs and flying saucers. That's correct. Back way back when, CBS actually did a story on UFOs. They brought in the guy that uh, supposedly was the first to see them flying, the first guy to see a UFO. And he'll even tell you that he didn't call them flying saucers, that it actually was started by the media. We got a nice little clip from that great little find on our part. I'm also going to talk a little bit about the Discovery Channel's live show they did last year when this report came out called UFO Declassified Live. Uh, you know, I, I feel real weird when I watch those shows because 
you know they're not going to give you the answer you want. They're not going to give you the definitive answer that, yes, there is. But during this one, he's got or he's got a video from different sightings that the U.S. military saw. And he brings in the U.S. suspects like George Knapp, Jeremy Cabal, all, those, uh, all these other nice uh, Nick Pope. And so it's a good little show if you want it's a good nap. But it had its moments. Oh, we have a, even have a story where the there's an alien connection to the Vatican. That even the Vatican knew that there were UFOs. Now that's a crazy story for tonight. What was that? That's my phone. Burgers is calling us. Hmm. I wonder what they've got for us. And while I answer the phone here, we're going to go ahead and start our first creature feature tonight. The day the Earth, day stood, the Earth still. stood still. Starring Michael Rennie as Klaatu and Gene Peters as Helen Benson. It was a pleasant spring day. An ideal day for a walk in the park. A day to push the baby buggy and be glad you were alive. There'd been at least 20 such sparkling days that spring, and perhaps a billion or more of them since the Earth began. And nothing had ever happened to spoil them but a few small fires, or a slight head cold in the evening, or a rain squall. This spring day, in the middle of the marvelous 20th century, was different. It was the most different day that had happened to mankind since the first Christmas. The thing was noticed in Hong Kong first on the British radar. But that's impossible. That thing must be doing about 4,000. That can't be aircraft, sir. It must be a buzz bomb. Better give an alarm. Keep it steady, though. Maybe faulty equipment. If the British radar in Hong Kong was faulty, so was the radar all over the Orient and Asia and Europe. So were the announcers on the radio. This is Moscow. This is Calcutta, India. This is Radio Luxembourg. The American radar screen quickly confirmed the fact that there was nothing wrong with the British radar and that there was something very gravely wrong 40 miles out in space, far above the Earth. Luckton at Ferris to Baker, Ferris to Baker. I have an object at 200,000 feet, 4000 miles an hour. Then it was here. Incredibly, it was here, burning down through the sky over Washington, D.C., hovering over the mall, descending. They're here! They're coming! They're here! They're here! Not a sound. Stillness. Not a move from the cordon of tanks and armored cars and troops in full battle dress. Not a sound or gesture from the monstrous domed disc resting on the grass. The ship designed for travel outside the Earth's atmosphere landed in Washington today at 3.47 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We still do not know where it came from. The ship is now resting exactly where it landed two hours ago. So far, there is no sign of life from inside the ship. Behind the cordon of troops, tanks, and artillery is a huge crowd of curiosity seekers. Every eye, every weapon is trained on the ship. The atmosphere is one of terrific tension rather than of fear. It's been that way for... Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something's happening. The spaceship is opening up. Someone is coming out. 
everybody. Don't get excited. Keep calm. Quiet. A wedge is opened in the smooth, unbroken metal skin of the spaceship. A ramp slithers out on the grass against an eerie glow of unearthly light from inside the spaceship stands the spaceman. He is a man, entirely like ourselves. He wears a close-fitting suit like a deep-sea diver's armor, but of alien material. A spherical helmet entirely conceals his head. He holds up his hand. He is going to speak. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. Receive me as a friend. Here he comes, men. Watch it. Keep that B.A.R. trained on him. He, he's going for something in his tunic, sir. Quiet. It's a ray gun or something. I'm going to let him have it. No, no, wait. You fool, he's down. Hold back that crowd. Everybody, back. Your wound doesn't look too bad. I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have gone for that ray gun. It, it was not a weapon. He understands us. It was a gift for your president. With it, you might have studied life on other planets. What's bothering the crowd, Lieutenant? Tell him to... Oh, no. Oh, no! A nightmare stands on the ramp leading out of the spaceship. A mechanical giant, monstrous, all metal and menace, with a visor in his helmet lifting slowly revealing a dreadful light boiling within that metal head. And suddenly, out of that incandescence, a narrow ray. <laughs> Rifles, tanks, artillery glow with that terrible incandescence and become vapor in a mush of puddled steel. And in the deathly silence that follows, the robot strides down the ramp. The Avenger... From where? God! The glad of Roscoe! He won't hurt you now! Let's get you to a hospital. Good afternoon, uh, sir. Good afternoon. The doctors here tell me your wound is not serious. No. It amazes them that it's almost healed already. I'm very glad. It should serve as some sort of indication of our powers. My name is Harley, secretary to the president. I've been told you speak our language fluently, that your name is Mr. Klatu. Just Klatu. The president has asked me to convey our deepest apologies for what has happened. Sit down, Mr. Harley. I'm sure I don't have to point out that your arrival was something of a surprise. Uh, had you been traveling long? About five months. Your months. You must have come a long way. About 250 million of your miles. Uh, naturally, we're very curious to know where you come from. From another planet. Let's just say that we're neighbors. It's rather difficult for us to think of another planet as a neighbor. I'm afraid in the present situation you'll have to learn to think that way. The present situation? I mean the reasons for my coming here. Would you care to talk about it? Not now, or with you alone. Perhaps you'd rather discuss it uh, personally with the president. I want to meet with the representatives from all the nations of the earth. I'm afraid that would be a little awkward. Why? In view of the tensions and suspicions in our world today, such a meeting would be uh, impossible. Mr. Harley, my mission here concerns the existence of every last creature who lives on earth. 
It must not be complicated by the childish jealousies, intrigues, suspicions of your planet. Our problems are very complex. You mustn't judge us too harshly. I'm impatient with stupidity. My people have learned to live without it. The President will, of course, do his best to bring about the meeting you desire. I know it will be quite useless. I wish it were otherwise. I'm very sorry, Mr. Clato. Wait. Before making any grave decisions, I think I should get out among your people. Become familiar with the basis for these strange, unreasoning attitudes. Our military people insist that you do not attempt to leave the hospital. The door will be locked. I'm sure you understand. Good day, Mr. Clato. The door will be locked. <laughs> will it now? Clato escaped. Nor could the embarrassing news of his disappearance long be suppressed. It was read about in the papers and described in excited tones over the radio. Authorities at Walter Reed Hospital still refuse to comment on how he managed to escape, except to say that he broke into a hospital locker and stole clothing belonging to a staff doctor. While the government does not minimize the crisis... This was the latest and the only the news. And among the countless millions listening were two men and a woman in an ordinary home on an ordinary street in Washington. Mrs. Crockett's rooming house. There was Mrs. Crockett and Helen Benson and little Bobby Benson. against powers that are beyond our control or understanding. Oh, I just can't stand any more of this. Oh, I wanted to hear more, Mrs. Crockett. It's exciting, isn't it, Mother? Hush, Bobby. Exciting? It's enough to drive a person... Oh, who are you? I'm sorry. Oh. I saw your sign outside and the door was open. My name is Carpenter. Yes? I'm looking for a room. Oh, oh, oh yes. I, I do have a nice room. Are you a G-man? No, I'm afraid I'm not. I bet he is, Mom. I bet he's looking for that spaceman. I think we've all been hearing too much about spacemen, Mr. Carpenter. This is Mrs. Benson, Mr. Carpenter. How do you do? And this is little Bobby, my youngest guest. Hi. I'm Mrs. Crockett. <laughs> You're a long way from home, aren't you, Mr. Carpenter? How did you know? Oh, I can tell a New England accent every time. <laughs> this way. Well, welcome back Carpenter. to Frightening Tales. So before we went to our movie, I received a phone call from Burgers, the Bigfoot UFO Rougarou Ghosts and E.T.'s Research Society. And they have a lead for us. They said there has been a sighting of a UFO in our area and that someone said it actually landed. So we're on our way to go investigate our own UFO, or as the government likes to call UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Now, on uh, the Discovery Channel's UFO Declassified Live, they had a little uh, segment, uh, a little package they rolled with Nick Pope, who's a former defense, uh, former Department of Defense guy for the UK. And he goes in to explain what is a UAP so and why they are using UAP. And you know, here, here's that little clip. So what you're saying there, if I keep calling these things UFOs, they're going to just think I'm crazy and not give me any listens or they're just going to totally ignore what I say. But I use UAP. Oh, all of a sudden, I know what I'm talking about. Basically, they just change the terms on you like they always do. They got to get rid of the stigmatization so that way you don't sound so crazy because uh, 
we all sound a bit crazy here. <clears throat> so on the Discovery Channel's UFO Declassified, they used a report from 2021. Now, since I went and looked up, since that sh- since I watched that show, I went and looked up the latest and greatest 2022 annual report on identified aerial phenomenon. Now, we won't see a 2023 until October. And that's basically when they just generate this stuff to kind of um, whet the appetite of us UFO watchers. And it kind of placates them saying, look, you know, we're admitting they're there. But guess what? So in this one, the only inter- really information they give you is they tell you about the scope and the assumption uh, governmental changes to manage the issues, the establishment of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or Arrow. Oh, the government sure loves their acronyms, Arrow. And I remember us talking about the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, like, what in the world is that? So we finally got a, a, a clear definition of it now. Yes, we have one now. It also gives us an appendix of key terms and an actual UAP reporting. So let's just jump into, let's just skip the scope and all the other stuff. That's born government speak. I mean, look, per its mandate, Arrow has the authority to coordinate UAP efforts beyond DOD. That's a snooze fest there. Let's get into the real meat and potatoes. Since its establishment in July 2022, Arrow has formulated and started to leverage a robust analytic process against identified UAP reported. Arrow's initial analysis and characterization of 366 newly identified reports informed by a multi-agency process judged more than half as exhibiting unremarkable characteristics. Now, I've seen the footage that they've used or that they've analyzed and i swear they're all using the same cameras everybody takes a picture of bigfoot with everything is so blurry you can't tell what it is i mean for all you know somebody threw a frisbee and they're like "Ooh, look at that we can't identify it but i do like the new inclusion of numbers here so of the 366 uapr events or categories reports 26 of these are unmanned aircraft systems, basically drones. 163 of these are balloons or balloon-like entities. Yeah, you got to start taking account of Chinese spy balloons now. So we got to include those numbers in, right? Well, apparently, you know, when, when we shot down that balloon, they readjusted all their sensitivities and radar and uh, detection systems. That Now they're detecting more balloons. And uh, so the, uh, that, 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 that's, that's a new number for them. And then six attributed to clutter. I have no idea what clutter is. They got a little subnote on it. Uh, probably stuff that's fallen down from the atmosphere uh, because we got so much junk in orbit. Now, like I said, we had 366 reports. They were able to identify... They weren't able to identify 171. So there it is. Brand new. 171 unidentified aerial phenomenons. They have no clue what they are. Because they move in a way that they don't they don't see. Uh, or they can't measure. Their <clears throat> lack of physical characterization that they could say, hey, that's this. So what are they? Are they aliens? 
Or are they just human-made junk or brand-new technology from China, France, Russia? And that's kind of what... Um, I mean, when you really break down the term, UFO, unidentified flying object, doesn't necessarily mean it's alien. It just means we don't know who built it. And uh, it moves in a way that we've never seen before. As some scientists would say, it moves in a way that defies physics. Well, you know, maybe physics is not as finite as you believe it is. Dude, you're really picking a fight with science, aren't you? The fight we're going to lose. You're right about that. Well, we're almost to our uh, destination here. And I kind of see something nice and shiny and very saucer-like. Wouldn't expect it a flying saucer at all. Yeah, that, that is pretty interesting. So we're going to go ahead and get back to the day the Earth stood still. And we will continue our investigation when we return. And so this Sunday morning, we asked the question that has been plaguing the entire world for two days now. Where is the creature and what is he up to? Eat your cereal, Bobby. Oh, Mom, I'm almost as it is. Bobby. Okay, Mr. Carpenter. I'm sorry, Mrs. Crockett. Please, go on reading. Oh, um, creature and what is he up to? Uh, if he can build a spaceship that can fly to Earth and a robot that can destroy our tanks and guns. What other terrors can he unleash at will? What a man. Obviously, we must track down this monster and destroy him before he destroys us. Correct. Then why don't they do it? This spaceman, or whatever he is, we automatically assume he's a menace. Maybe he isn't, after all. Well, then where is he, Mrs. Benson? What's he up to? Maybe he's afraid. Oh, he's afraid. Well, after all, he was shot the minute he landed here. I just was wondering what I'd do. Perhaps before deciding upon a course of action, you'd want to know more about the people here. Nothing strange about Washington. A person from another planet might disagree with you. <gasps> oh, it's all right, Mrs. Crockett. That's Mr. Stevens calling for me. Uh -huh. I'll go to the door. That awful robot standing there like an ugly iron statue is giving me the shivers. Morning, Tom. Hello, Helen. Hey, can anybody see us? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, all right, we're all set. I picked up some sandwiches and put gas in the car, and the radio is busted, so we can forget about the spaceman for a day, huh? I haven't been able to arrange for anyone to stay with Bobby. Mrs. Crockett's going out, and uh, I don't suppose we could take him with us. Oh, well, we could. Just today. Mrs. Crockett has plans, and I don't know who else to ask. I haven't any plans. Oh, Mr. Carpenter. I'd be glad to spend the day with Bobby, if you'd let me. Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> well, it's very nice of you to offer. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Carpenter, this is Tom Stevens. Hi. How do you do? Bobby and I had a fine time yesterday afternoon. I thought he might show me around the city today. Well... Please, I'd enjoy it. And this is where my father is buried. Robert Benson, Virginia, 1st Lieutenant, 45th Infantry. April 10th, 1916, January 29th, 1944. Your father was very young, wasn't he, Bobby? He was killed at Anzio. Did, did all these people here die in wars? Well, most of them. 
Didn't you ever hear of Arlington Cemetery? I'm afraid not. You don't seem to know much about anything, Mr. Carpenter. I've been far away, Bobby. Don't they have places like this where you've been? Not like this one. You see, they they don't have any wars. Let's walk. All right. What would you like to do now? Go to the movies. All right. No fooling? No fooling. Uh, do you have to have money to go there? Well, I've got two dollars. I'll treat you, okay? No, I want to take you. Look, do you think they'd accept these? Gee, what are they? Diamonds? Well, in some places, these are what people use for money. They're easy to carry and they don't wear out. I'll bet they're worth a million dollars. Would you give me your two dollars for two of these? Sure, okay. There you are. Um, let's not say anything to Mom about this, huh? Why not? Well, she doesn't like me to take advantage of people. Hey, before we go to the movies, would you like to see the Abraham Lincoln Memorial? Thank you. Yes, I would. Well, this is it. That's the Gettysburg speech up there. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Those are great words. That's some statue. That's the kind of man I'd like to talk to. Bobby, who is the greatest man in America today? Oh, gee, I don't know. The spaceman, I guess. <laughs> I was speaking of Earthmen. Oh, I don't know. The president? I mean the greatest philosopher, the greatest thinker, scholar. Oh, well, that's Professor Barnhart, I guess. Yes, Professor Barnhart. He's the greatest scientist in the world. And he lives right here in Washington, right near where my mother works. Where is that? Department of Commerce. She's a secretary. Why? I have an idea, Bobby. Let's go see Professor Barnhart. What for? You just said he's the greatest man in America. You're kidding, aren't you? Wouldn't you like to meet him? Oh, sure I would. Ah, oh, go on. I bet you'd be scared. Maybe we can scare him more than he can scare us. I like you, Mr. Carpenter. You're a real screwball. <laughs> Gee, maybe the professor isn't at home. Let's take a look through that window. I'll bet this is where he works. Look in there. Books all over. Blackboard's full of stuff. That door's locked, too. Is it? I know it isn't, Bobby. That's funny. We'll go in and wait for him. I'm sure he won't mind. Gee, just think. All the brains that goes on in here. What's all that stuff on the blackboard? It's a problem in celestial mechanics. And what's the matter? You'll never get the answer that way. Let's see. Hey, it says don't erase, don't touch. Now, this is right. Check. Correct. Correct. And here's where he gets off the track. Now we'll fix that. So. So. You must be an arithmetic teacher, I bet. Differentiate... The equation there. Who are you? Uh-oh. How dare you come in like this? How dare you write on that blackboard? Do you realize the professor's been working on that problem for weeks? He'll solve it in no time now. What do you want? We came to see Professor Barnhart. Well, he's not here, and he won't be back until evening. I think you better leave. Will you tell him that Mr. Carpenter was here? 1615 M Street, Northwest. I think he'll want to talk to me. Indeed. Thank you. 
Oh, it may have entered your mind to erase what I've written on the blackboard. It certainly has. I wouldn't do that. The professor needs it very badly. Come on, Bobby. Carpenter, 1650 M Street, Northwest. Carpenter, M Street. Operator, give me the police. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I am your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man Redman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tommy. Hey, hey, hey. So we have arrived at our destination, and this UFO is pretty slick. Yeah, it's pretty shiny, too. Looks a lot like uh, the UFO we've seen in uh, The Flight of the Navigator. Ooh, that's one of my favorite uh, childhood movies on UFOs. A uh, little kid falls in the ravine, reappears like 12 years later, and uh, his brain's connected to a UFO or an unidentified flying object or flying saucer that's uh, sentient, and they uh, give NASA a run for their money, and they get chased all over the countryside. Yeah, that was a pretty good one. Um, I'm going to rewatch that one. It's been a while since I've seen it. I have that one on DVD, so I don't have to worry about Disney+. Plus. But anyway, this, this UFO is a lot like, um, if Edward Murrow could see this now, I don't think he'd be as much of a skeptic as he was on his show, The Case for the Flying Saucer, where he interviewed Kenneth Arnold and astronomer Donald Menzel. Now, Kenneth Arnold is the guy that is attributed to seeing the first UFOs in the world, or in the country. He's an aviator who reported seeing nine unidentified flying objects flying in tandem near Mount Rainier in Washington on June 24, 1947. Now, when Edward Murrow investigated him, you get the account of his sighting. So we're going to go ahead and play that for you right now here on Frightening Tales. Among the many service and private flyers who participated in this search was Mr. Kenneth Arnold, a businessman of Boise, Idaho a veteran pilot in forest fire control work, a man with six years' experience flying over the rugged terrain in and around Mount Rainier. Yesterday morning, we spoke to Mr. Arnold over the phone. We asked him to repeat for us, in his own words, what he saw in the sky over Mount Rainier on June 24, 1947. We recorded what he said, and we're going to play it for you now. The slight beep that you will hear intermittently is required by law to let both parties of a phone conversation know they are being recorded. Here now is Mr. Kenneth Arnold. It was while I was searching for this crash that I noticed a terrific blue flash past those of my airplane. I noticed that the flash came from a chain of very peculiar-looking objects that were rapidly approaching mountain air at about 107 degrees. This chain of objects were uh, nine in number. Uh, I assumed at the time they were a new formation or a new type of jet, though I was baffled by the fact that they did not have any tails. It passed uh, almost directly in front of me, but at a distance of about 23 miles, which is not very great in the air. I judged their wingspan to be at least 100 feet across. Uh, the sighting did not particularly disturb me at the time, except that uh, I had never 
Mr. Arnold, after landing, made a routine report of what he had seen to a Civil Aeronautics Administration representative. Promptly forgot the matter. Until the wheels of publicity began to turn. The floodgates opened. I never could understand at that time why the world got so upset about and this, as these things didn't seem to be a menace. I believe they had something to do with our Army and Air Force. On three different occasions, Mr. Arnold was questioned by military intelligence. They expressed doubt as to the accuracy of some of his reported observations. That's right. Now, of course, some of the reports they did take from newspapers, which did not quote me properly. Now, uh, when I told the press, they misquoted me, and in the excitement of it all, uh, one newspaper and another one got it so snarled up that uh, nobody knew just exactly what they were talking about, I guess. Here's how the name Flying Saucer was born. These objects uh, more or less fluttered like they were, uh, oh, I'd say boats on very rough water or a very rough air of some type. And uh, uh, when I described how they flew, I said if they flew like you take a saucer and throw it across the water, uh, most of the newspapers misunderstood and misquoted that, too. They said uh, that I said that they were saucer-like. I said they fashion. That was an historic misquote. While Mr. Arnold's original explanation has been forgotten, the term flying saucer has become a household word. Few people realize that Mr. Arnold has reported seeing these same strange objects in the sky on three other occasions. He says that some pilots in the Northwest have reported seeing them on eight separate occasions. We asked for his own personal opinion on the nature of what he and the others had seen. Uh, I don't know how best to explain that. I uh, more or less have uh, reserved an opinion as to what I think, naturally being a natural-born American. If it's not made by uh, our science or our Army Air Forces, I'm inclined to believe that it's of an extraterrestrial origin. Extraterrestrial origin? You mean you think there's a possibility they may be coming out of space from other planets? I suppose that's pretty hard for people to take seriously. Well, uh... I'll tell you this much, uh, all the airline pilots, none of us have appreciated being laughed at. We made our reports essentially to begin with because we thought that if our government didn't know what it was, it was only our duty to report it to our, our nation and uh, uh, to our Air Force out of it. I think it's something that uh, is of concern to every person in the country. And uh, I don't think it's anything for people to get hysterical about. Now, that's just my frank opinion of it. So that's how it all began. That was the trigger action. Kenneth Arnold's story went scudding over the news wires. Radio and newspapers picked it up. And then within days, the country broke out into a flood of flying saucer observations. Many of these reports, a great many of them, obviously could be discounted. Others, reports from perfectly competent, sober, and reliable observers, found no easy answer. In the face of this, late in 1947... The chief of staff of the Air Forces, at that time General Carl Tui Spots, sent a directive to the Air Material Command located at Wright Field, Ohio. The Air Material Command is directed to set up a project whose purpose is to collect, collate, evaluate, and distribute to interested government agencies and contractors all pertinent information concerning sightings of phenomena in the atmosphere, which can be construed to be of concern to the national security. So was born... Between 300 and 400 miles per hour. Remember, these were trained observers, Air Force men. The objects reportedly traveled in a straight line, 
Taking the mean reported speed, 350 miles per hour, and the time in sight, one half hour, the objects must then have traveled 175 miles while in sight. If the objects were of such proportions as to be seen at that distance, it is believed that more details could have been observed at the first sighting. And the Air Material Command opinion on the Muroc Air Base sightings was this. This report is a result of misinterpretation of the nature of real stimuli, probably research balloons. Another report on January 7th, 1948. Tech Sergeant Quinton A. Blackwell, chief operator of the control tower at Godman Field, an Air Force base at Fort Knox, Kentucky, spotted a strange object hovering over the south portion of the field. In a matter of minutes, a flight of four P-51 fighter planes approaching the field were contacted by radio and asked to chase the object. Leader of the flight was Captain Thomas F. Mantell, Jr., veteran of the Normandy invasion, with some 3,000 flying hours to his credit. At 2.45, Mantell reported by radio, Object directly ahead and above and moving about half my speed, going up to take a look. At 3.15, Mantell reported again. Object still ahead and above, moving at about my speed or faster, 360 miles per hour. The thing looks metallic and is of tremendous size. I'm trying to close in for a better look. By now, Mantell and his flight were at about 15,000 feet. They had no oxygen equipment. At 18,000 feet, the escorting planes turned back, but Mantell kept climbing. His next report came from 20,000 feet. Going to 25,000. If no closer, we'll abandon search. That was the last report from Captain Thomas Mantell. At approximately 25,000 feet, it is believed he blacked out for want of oxygen. His plane climbed another 5,000 feet and then went into a dive. When it crashed, parts of it were scattered around an area covering one-sixth of a mile. Project Saucer's Conclusion it seems probable that the object observed was the planet Venus. Later, in a report dated April 27, 1949, this conclusion was reversed. Further investigation showed the elevation and azimuth readings of Venus, and the object is reported at specified time intervals, just didn't jibe. The object Captain Mantell chased to his tragic death is now officially marked unidentified. In all, Project Saucer investigated 375 cases. The report takes in 244 different observations. Just yesterday, we asked Major General William F. McKee, Assistant Vice Chief of Staff, United States Air Forces, to summarize the conclusions reached by Project Saucer. He said, During two years of thorough investigation, no evidence was found which would indicate that the reported flying saucers were anything but the result of natural phenomena. I have to give props to CBS for making a 30-minute report on UFOs. That's pretty cool. Back then, they gave a lot of credence and uh, a lot of credibility to UFOs. And they wanted to get the definitive report out from the government. <laughs> you said from the government. <laughs> well, that we, we've known the media reports just for the government all the time. I mean, look what they're doing to poor uh, Grush the whistleblower on the UFO. You've had uh, Wired Magazine, New York Times, all writing, calling him crazy, saying, oh, he doesn't have the the credentials to be taken as an expert. And there was a reason why Grush didn't use, say, the, say the likes of George Knapp or Jeremy Corbell. Because 
he knew they wouldn't be taken seriously. He wanted the New York Times to break the story, and all they did was laugh at him. So he should have just gone ahead and used the or the uh, usual channels. Now, I find it interesting that uh, Arnold made this report one week before the supposed crash of an alien at New Mexico, or in Roswell, New Mexico. Well, you say supposed. You still got a little of that journalist in you there. Okay, so one week after the sighting of the nine flying saucers, which we heard that uh, it's incorrectly termed, he never called it a flying saucer. You had the wreck at the crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And then they say they hauled off the wreckage to Area 51. Well, on UFO Declassified Live, one of the experts said, well, they couldn't have hauled it to Area 51 because it wasn't built yet it was under construction at the time so there's no place to hide it there and that the most likely place for the ufo wreckage to go to would have been wright patterson air force base i've heard of wright patterson before where, where, where have i heard that one destination unknown oh yeah that's right that that's where the supposed lab where mothman was made yeah that's that, that air force base man they sure do a lot of shady things at air force bases well, if you go to, uh, if you watch the UFO hunters on Pluto TV's paranormal channel, which they seem to be in love with that show right now, because every time I turn on Pluto TV, that's all I get. Uh, I, I don't remember the, the, the guy who writes UFO magazine, but all I know that you never see him without that hat and those Ray-Bans. His hat's got his UFO magazine on it. He's got like a leather aviator jacket on it's kind of weird that he never takes that off, even when it's just like their little diary moment. But they say up in um, Utah, like Dugay Air Force Base up there is the new Area 51, or they affectionately called it Area 52. That it's the, the proving ground and like the home for the men in black. Yeah, uh, that, that, that men in black thing, that one is the one that seems the most hokey and shady to me. Like, there's really an organization that's going to come out and threaten you if you got classified material or UFO material on your website and they're going to shut you down and say never speak again. I find that one shady. Yeah, what I also found shady was the two guys that were supposedly taking pictures outside of it on public land. The first episode that introduces you to them, one of the guys wearing Marine Corps gear. I'm like, oh, cool, look, fellow Marine. And then the next episode, he's wearing Navy SEAL stuff. What happened there? Thinking a little stolen valor, a little uh, programming there on the show's part, a little, hey, we, we, we've got to establish credibility. And then that very same episode, they're in a different spot that doesn't even look the same. And this truck comes barreling down, this uh, security truck. And there's a guy that's dressed in all black. He's like a uh, black utility gear. Not even black suit like you see in the movies, men in black. Or like what's been reported from all these other so-called witnesses. And I'm going, this is the most staged thing. Because he comes out with an attitude. They blur his face. I need to see your ID. You're not allowed to take pictures here. I got to take the cameras here. When the previous episode, they see a white truck hidden behind like a little shack with a guy dressed in black. 
Of course, it's all blurry. Can't see anything on there. And these people have got these cameras with these great lenses on it. It's like, surely you can get a very clear picture. Dude, you're really stuck on this picture thing. Of course I am. I'm a photographer. I'm a video guy. I know the I know the capabilities of cameras. And why is it that every time someone gets something and, oh, look, I got proof. Why is it blurry? That's why when I get photos of this flying saucer, that it's going to be amazing. Because I got, I got my $3,000 camera here. And we're going to take some pictures. And even my camera phone is much better than what I've been seeing here lately. So, uh, Tommy, what are you doing? Here's this button here. Button? Don't go pushing buttons. But it's red. Nobody can resist pressing a red button. I'm sure that alien language around that red button says don't push unless it's... No. No. You did. Well, it looks like we're going to be in here for a little while, so we're going to go back to our movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Here. On Frights and E-Tales. It is early evening of the same day. Tom Stevens and Helen Benson drive up to the boarding house after their picnic, quite unaware of the dark squad car parked at the curb a few feet ahead. Well, here we are. Thank you, Tom. It was a wonderful day. You, um, still haven't answered my question. Oh, you know how I feel, Tom. But I still want time to think it over. <laughs> if I could only tell the boss I was getting married and acquiring two dependents. You're a good salesman. <laughs> yeah, a good salesman wouldn't give you time to think about it. <laughs> good night. Uh, didn't you forget something? Now, good night. <laughs> good night. Oh, Mr. Carpenter. Hi, Mom. Hello, darling. Uh, Mrs. Benson, this is Mr. Brady. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Brady's a government agent. Oh? Did you have a nice day, Bobby? We had a swell time, didn't we, Mr. Carpenter? Yes, we did. We went to the movies and had a banana split, and we went to see Daddy. Oh, I don't know how to thank you, Mr. Carpenter. I enjoyed every minute of it. We better get going. Yes. Good night, Bobby. Good night. I'll tell you the rest of that story tomorrow. Good night, Mrs. Benson. Good night. Nice meeting you, Mrs. Benson. Thank you. Why did Mr. Carpenter have to go with Mr. Brady? I don't know. Maybe it was a mistake. Upstairs with you. Yeah. We sure had fun today. We went all over Washington, and we went to see Professor Barnhart. Professor Barnhart? Oh, sure. Barnhart. Up to bed now. Pronto. Is uh, this the man you want to see, Professor Barnhart? Oh, uh, thank you, Mr. Brady. If I may speak to Mr. Carpenter alone, please. I'll wait outside, Professor. You are Mr. Carpenter. 
Yes, Professor. Who wrote those equations on my blackboard? My clumsy way of introducing myself. Forgive the manner in which you were picked up. Hilda called the police before I saw your annotations on the board. I appreciate the need for security, Professor. I have not quite fathomed the problem, even with your remarkable assistance, Mr. Carpenter. Let's look at it, sir. All you have to do now is substitute this expression at this point. Yes, that will reproduce the first order term. But what about the effect of the other terms? Negligible. With variation of parameters, this is the answer. How can you be so sure? Have you tested this theory? I find it works well enough to get me from one planet to another. Clot two. I spent two days at your Walter Reed Hospital. I was interviewed by. I need no proof. This blackboard is proof. If you are not interested, or if you intend to turn me over to the army, we needn't waste any more time. Interested? Will you excuse me one moment, please? Uh, Mr. Brady, you may go now. Please thank General Cutler and tell him... Tell him that I know this gentleman. So much for that, Klaatu. Now, please sit down. You have faith, Professor. Faith and uh, uh, curiosity. Uh, do sit down. I have several thousand questions to ask you. I would like to explain my mission here. That is my first question. It was my hope to discuss this officially with all the nations of the world. I was not allowed the opportunity. Now, we know from scientific observation that your planet has discovered a rudimentary kind of atomic energy. We also know that you're experimenting with rockets. Yes, that is true. What exactly is the nature of your mission? To warn you that your planet faces danger. What I have to say must be said to all concerned. I come to you as a last resort. Must I take drastic action in order to get a hearing? What sort of action do you mean? Violent action? Perhaps leveling the island of Manhattan? Or toppling the rock of Gibraltar into the sea? Well? Would you, for example, be willing to meet with a group of scientists I'm calling together? We're having our first meeting tonight. Perhaps you could explain your mission to them, and they in turn could present it to their various peoples. That is what I came to see you about. One thing, Klaatu. Suppose this group should reject your proposals. What is the alternative? There is no alternative, Professor. In such a case, the planet Earth would have to be eliminated. Such power exists? I assure you, such power exists. The uh, scientists who are attending these meetings have come here from all over the world. Now, this power you speak of, they must be made to realize that it exists. Now, you mentioned a demonstration of force. Yes. Something that would affect the entire planet? That can be arranged. Uh, perhaps uh, a little uh, demonstration. <laughs> Something dramatic but not destructive. It's quite an interesting problem. Would tomorrow be all right? If you say so. Say about noon? Then tomorrow at noon. Good. Going out tonight, Mrs. Benson? Oh, Oh, it's you, Mr. Carpenter. I'm afraid I startled you. Yes, I am going out. Mr. Stevens is calling for me. Everyone seems so... so... Jittery is the word. <laughs> Bobby's the only person I know who isn't jittery. He's a fine boy, Mrs. Benson. Naturally, I think so. Warm, friendly, intelligent. He's the only real friend I've made since I've been here. Mr. Carpenter, this is none of my business, but why did that detective come here last night? That Mr. Brady? 
Bobby and I tried to see Professor Barnhart in the afternoon, but he wasn't in. Apparently, they thought I was looking for secrets of some kind. Well, that must be Tom now. Oh, Mr. Stevens, do come in. Helen is in the sitting room. Alert Mrs. Crockett. She has a romantic mind. Hello there, Helen. Got a minute to spare. You ready? Hello, Carpenter. Uh, picture starts at 8.50 on the dot, Helen. I'll be ready in a minute. I was just talking to Mr. Carpenter. Oh, I hope Mr. Carpenter won't think I'm intruding. Excuse me. I was just going up to my room. Good night. Good night, Mr. Carpenter. Have a good time, both of you. Thank you. Tom, that was awful. Uh, I'm sorry. I guess I'm just tired of hearing about Mr. Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter. Shh. I don't like the way he's attached himself to you and Bobby. After all, what, what do you know about him? Very little, it's true. Well, let's not stand and talk about it anymore. I'll go up and get my things. <laughs> Mr. Carpenter, thanks a lot for helping me with my homework. That's all there is to it, Bobby, my boy. All you have to remember is first find the common denominator, then subtract. I got you. Thanks, Mr. Carpenter. I'm leaving with Tom, Bobby. You'll go to bed on time now, won't you? I'll say goodnight again, Mrs. Benson. Mr. Carpenter. Yes? Nothing. Good night. Good night. Night, Bobby. Bobby, I think it would be better if you didn't see quite so much of Mr. Carpenter. Well, gee, why, Mom? He's swell. I like him. And he's awful good at arithmetic. He even helped Professor Barnhart. I... I'm sure he's a very nice man. I just think he might prefer to be left alone. Now, go to bed, darling. But why would he want to be left alone? Don't forget to brush your teeth. Come in. Bobby, do you have a flashlight I might borrow for tonight? Oh, sure, Mr. Carpenter. It's a real Boy Scout one. Thank you, Bobby. Well, why do you want it? The light in my room went out. See you tomorrow. Better get into bed now. Gee, I wonder if the batteries are any good. Mr. Carpenter! Bobby went to the door and opened it. What he saw down the hallway puzzled him. Mr. Carpenter's door was ajar and light was pouring out of his room. Funny. He said his light went out. Then Mr. Carpenter came out carrying the flashlight and stealing down the steps like a thief. This was peculiar, but this was adventure. Bobby followed Mr. Carpenter, and what he saw couldn't have been a dream. It was too real. But it couldn't have been true either. It was too deliciously frightful. Dream or not, it was filled with darkness stung by staccato flashes from a genuine Boy Scout flashlight. Flashes that activated a giant robot into knocking out his guards so that Mr. Carpenter from the boarding house could get into the shed the army had built around the spaceship. And dream or not, Bobby saw this Mr. Carpenter go into the spaceship. And then a wave of sheer terror swept over Bobby at last and he turned and ran wildly away the way little boys always run in nightmares, trying so hard and moving so slowly and all the time falling down. It was awful. It was swell. When his mother came home around midnight, Bobby was curled up on the sofa. Instantly, he jumped up and ran to her and to Tom Stevens as they came into the hallway. Mom, Mom, listen. Bobby, what are you doing down here at this hour, fully dressed? Oh, Mr. Stevens, Mom, I had to tell you. Tell me what? Oh, what's the matter, Bobby? I followed Mr. Carpenter tonight, right after you left, and gee, where do you think he went? Right into the spaceship. 
Now, Bobby, just one minute. Honest, Mom, I saw him. They got a shed built around the spaceship so nobody can get to it. But Mr. Carpenter flashed a signal to that Iron Man up there. And what do you think? Bobby, have you been dreaming again? Why, sure. No, Mom, honest, I haven't. I promise you, I saw it. Where, where did you see all of this? Well, I'm telling you, on the lawn, down at the mall. In that place where the soldiers are all out in front. Oh? Uh, and where were the soldiers all this time? Well, that robot fella grabbed him and knocked him out. Oh, Bobby. Yeah, and then Mr. Carpenter walked into the shed, and the spaceship opened up, and he walked right inside, and it closed again. Gee, I like Mr. Carpenter, but I'm scared, Mom. Oh, darling, it was just a bad dream. We'll prove it to you. Tom, will you see if Mr. Carpenter's still up? Ask him to come down here a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man Redman, and I'm joined by Tommy. Currently, we are uh, stuck inside of this flying saucer here. We've been walking around exploring it and uh, kind of reminded uh, of the story that I've seen uh, across Paranormality Magazine, which comes from several different sources, and including the New York Post. And that's that the... Grush, David Grush, the Pentagon whistleblower, claimed the Vatican helped the U.S. retrieve a UFO from Benito Mussolini. Wow, now that's a big claim, that the Vatican helped the U.S. retrieve a UFO? That's right, he claimed that the UFO collected alien UFOs over years. It said he retrieved, said America retrieved one such saucer from World War II Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. And they got the tip from Pope Pius XII. That's pretty cool. He said in 1933 was the first recovery in Europe in Magenta, Italy. They recovered a partially intact vehicle and the Italian government moved it to a secure airbase in Italy around 1944 and 45. The Pope back-channeled that and told the Americans what the Italians had and ended up scooping it. Grush said of the alleged post-war mission. The so-called whistleblower claimed that the Vatican was certainly aware of alien existence and that the UF sightings over Italy during Mussolini's dictatorship were widely known. Of course, he has no solid evidence to validate his claims. Now, this is where um, George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell come in. They say he does not have physical evidence because... He was more or less a uh, inspector general. He was investigating different anomalies, paperwork and all that. So he's only got the paperwork and the reports that were filed with the U.S. government showing that they know it. So he's never physically seen any of the stuff that he's talked about. I find it funny here that the New York Post thought the Vatican would actually respond to their questions about this. They're not going to respond to that. So let's talk about Grush a little bit. Everybody wants to talk about Grush. Who is he? Who does the bunny? What is his bona fides? What is his, his credentials? Well, he's a decorated combat officer who served in, in Afghanistan. And he also worked for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. He claimed the existence of the UFO retrieval program last week, again, offering no evidence aside from what he allegedly been told from interviews with intelligence officers. So Grush is continuously making him a name, and the more he reports, the more we keep getting reports like our comments like we just read there. He claimed the existence 
program last week, off, again, offering no evidence. You see that throughout every story they write about Grush. He offers no evidence. He offers no evidence. Well, if you want a good, good deep dive into who David Grush is, go listen to Weaponized by George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell. Of course, after my show, because they know the guy. They've been they've met with him several times over the last two or three years, and they claim they sat on this story because he asked them not to report it. Because, as I mentioned earlier, he wanted it to go to a more credible source, and so far, the credible sources are acting like propaganda outlets from for the government and for the elites. Which, oh wait, we already know that. I'm sure the I'm sure that uh, New York Post would love this inside you know this this exclusive feature inside a UFO, dude. We're gonna end up more like on World Weekend Report or World News Report, something like that. Cause not a single soul gonna believe that we were inside here. I Maybe mean, we can't even get people to believe we walked on the moon. They still want to say it's Stanley Kubrick d- shot that movie. Yeah. This world is kind of crazy when it comes to believing. I mean, you you could probably take somebody and have, give them a tour of our flying saucer, and they won't tell us that this is real. I mean, look at this. I can't even read this language here. <laughs> Good luck with that. I can't even make out what a symbol is. But uh, I, I think they might be able to help us out. Hey, um, we're not alone, people. At least not in this ship. We're going to go ahead and go back to our movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, here on Frightening Tales. Yes, Tom? Helen, he's not there, but look what I found on the carpet. It can't be a diamond, can it? I don't know. But it's much too big. Oh, it looks real to me. Oh, Mr. Carpenter's got lots of them. He gave a couple of them to me, here. He gave you these? Well, not exactly. I gave him two dollars. I, I, I don't know, but this whole thing, it just does, that doesn't make sense. Look, Helen, do you think it's all right for you to stay here? There's a strong lock on my door, and Bobby's going to sleep in my room tonight. Okay. Upstairs, nightmare boy. It wasn't a nightmare. Bobby. Yeah, Mom? Bobby, your shoes are soaking wet. Yeah, grass on the mall was kind of wet. Good night, all. Oh, Tom... I wonder. Klaatu had promised what Professor Barnhart termed a little demonstration. Promised it for the following day at noon. It is now two minutes to twelve. In the Department of Commerce building, Helen Benson has left her office on her way to lunch. She stands in the corridor waiting for an elevator. Mrs. Benson... Mr. Carpenter, what are you doing here? I came to see you. Well, I was just going to lunch. What is it? I saw Bobby this morning before he went to school. Yes? I want to know what he told you. <laughs> oh, Bobby has such an active imagination. Did you believe what he told you? Really, Mr. Carpenter, this is where I work, and I only have a short time for lunch today. If you'll excuse me... I'll go down with you. If you like. The service elevator's open. You'll have to press the button, Mr. Carpenter. Oh, yes, yes. It was...
was just five seconds before noon of that fateful day when Helen Benson and Mr. Carpenter stepped into that electric elevator. At that same moment, the enormous commerce of our briskly modern world roared and thundered in the streets. Five seconds to noon. Four seconds. Three seconds. Two seconds. One. Zero. High noon. And silence. All over the world, traffic stopped dead in a million streets. Here and there, a horse-drawn vehicle clopped its melancholy way among the motionless motors. Bicycles moved before awe and the common desolation made the riders stop of their own free will. Electric clocks stopped on the dot of noon. All across the powered world, the machines stood still. Toasters failed to pop and battle fleets on maneuvers drifted aimlessly on their dead propellers. Joe Smith's milkshake didn't spin, and the humming turbines deep in Hoover Dam didn't produce current. Mrs. Housewife's washer stopped in the middle of its cycle, and electric lights went out all over the world. At a conference table in Washington, a hasty council of the armed services was held. As far as we can tell, gentlemen, all electric power has been cut off all over with few exceptions, and even these exceptions are remarkable. Hospitals, planes and flight, that sort of thing. I wish I could be more specific, but all communications are out. I can tell you that we are preparing to declare a state of national emergency, but before we start discussing plans, I want to report from Colonel Ryder. All I can report, General, is that the robot at the spaceship was discovered to have moved last night. It knocked unconscious the two soldiers guarding the entrance to the shed the Army engineers had built around the spaceship, indicating that someone, presumably the spaceman... It wanted to get into the ship for one reason or another. In our likelihood to signal for this demonstration of his planet's power. Go on, Colonel. Well, that's all, sir. Well, gentlemen, until now, we've agreed on the desirability of capturing this man alive. We can no longer afford to be soft in this matter. We will get him alive if possible, but we must get him. Is that clear, gentlemen? Dead or alive? Get him. <laughs> And skip you, Uno. Yeah, try two. Oh, yeah. I ain't seen a beating on aliens since, um, um, um. When, when, when's the last time the U.S. handily beat down some aliens in a movie? How about never? Every time we see an alien movie, we're always getting our butt whooped until we discover some secret way to, um, to knock it out. I mean, take War of the Worlds, for example. Uh, they're going to they're gonna constantly fight these UFOs or the Martians, and they're never going to find a way to beat them unless they discover... Okay, I can't spoil it because you got to listen to it tonight to know how they defeated the aliens in War of the Worlds. But what are my favorite uh, alien movies? Oh, man, where, where do I start? Well, you know there's no conversation without Aliens itself, the Alien franchise. Yeah, but the only one that's really worth watching is Aliens, the second one. Uh, I mean, to me, that's my favorite. And uh, part of the reason why I was scared of the dark for a long time was because of that movie. Uh, those xenomorphs are pretty uh, 
pretty vicious. And I guess that's why I like the Alien versus Predator series as well. And Predator's another great alien movie that, uh, I mean, look how many of the special forces he knocked out before Arnold got clever, or I should say Arnold got lucky, and, and discovered that uh, he can't see normal, that he uses uh, infrared. or something. I don't even think Arnold really knew that it was infrared. Uh, I just figured, I think he just got uh, made that little connection that, oh, I'm covered in mud. He can't see me because I'm covered in mud. Uh, I don't think Arnold fully ever learned that um, that the alien only sees in infrared. But that's another one that after, you know, like Predator, Predator 2 was pretty good. Predators was good. The Alien vs. Predator series, yeah, it's a little, it's on shaky ground there. Uh, what other alien kicking movie? Mars Attacks. Oh, that one was hilarious. I love the campiness of it. I love the the aliens, the cameos from Martin Short to Jack Nicholson getting vaporized. Oh, that was a great, fun movie. I, I, I didn't really like Mars Attacks. Uh, for a person who loves campy movies, to me, that one was just bad. I, I love the uh, the 50s throwback that they did with the uh the martians there i i like that part and i like the weapons but um i i just i guess i didn't really get into the characters uh, i think that's my sticking point with them now battleship i really like battleship i usually have to fast forward to like the first 15 20 minutes of it you know when the main character is getting in trouble the soccer match and then the the alleged beef between him and the uh, Japanese officer. I, I, I fast forward through that because I could just get bored with it. The only thing I like out of that part was that he broke into a gas station to get a burrito for a girl he really liked. Yeah, that's love there. Nothing like promising to get a girl some food and you go to the place and it's closed. So you break in and, ho- and get her a burrito straight out of, you know, frozen burrito. That's love there, son. I don't know. But I like the fact that here's a movie based on a game that has nothing to do with aliens. It's just you and me sitting there going, B-10. Hit, you sunk my battleship. It's just based off of of a board game. I I like that you throw in a little aliens in there. And look, them aliens weren't playing. They threw up that dome. And again, we got to get lucky to just get that first strike and take them out. Got lucky that you could go get a actual battleship. That would have been... I, I don't care what you say. I still love battleships. Those things are a work of art. Those are the best machines ever made. And then another alien kicking movie. Battlefield Los Angeles. Now, we got me a good Marine moment there, right? Oorah! <laughs> I, I, I love it. You got a Marine platoon trying to salvage or trying to save uh, people. And look. They, they, they really can't figure out how to beat these aliens and uh, they're not really that smart or they're not sciencey. They're warriors. And uh, again, another by luck discovery that they're drones and that they're controlled by a central nervous system kind of thing. I mean, it was really good. Uh, you, you've got the backstory of, of Aaron Eckhart's character where he uh, is now in command of a brother who lost uh, of a Marine who lost his brother and he's having to deal with the, the loss of like his whole squad. I mean, it's a good gripping moment and there's some great 
emotional moments throughout the show as throughout the movie as well. Uh, I really like it. I'll watch it from time to time. But we can't forget Independence Day. Boy, oh boy. If it wasn't for Jeff Goldblum, they would have lost. That's not pure luck. There's a man who knew what he was doing. And he was able to discover that, that, that code, that countdown in the system. And he uh, discovered how they could communicate. Now, that's not luck. He knew what he was looking at. He knew something wasn't right. And there you go. Have you watched the second one yet? No, I can't bring myself to it. Uh, it it's just no Will Smith, no Randy Quaid. It, it's just, you can't, it, it's just hard to read. I mean, Chris, there was a great moment in there was when uh, they were talking about Area 51 and how they can fund such objects. Yeah, like, what do you think? $20,000 for a hammer? You really think that's what they paid for the hammer? Oh, well, that was a great scene. There's a lot of great stuff in there uh, that we could see. And uh, I know our, our poor alien friends here are looking at us like we're crazy. Uh, I wonder what, what movie they liked the most. I don't know which one they like or if they even understand us. But this one's looking a little thirsty with that straw right there. Well, I think we should... Uh, we shouldn't stick around to find out what they're going to probe with that, if that's a probe or a straw. So let's get back to the day the Earth stood still. Tommy and I are going to take our alien friends out for a drink. Right here on Frightening Tales. All over the world, electric power has been neutralized on the stroke of noon as a token of the spaceman's power and as a warning to the Earth. While they've been trapped between floors in an elevator, the spaceman has told Helen his identity and purpose here. I've already told you more than I told Professor Barnhart, because my life, in a sense, is in your hands. But if I die, a world, your world, may die too. Yes, I... I understand. I thought if you knew the facts, you'd appreciate the importance of my not being caught before the meeting tonight with the world scientists. Yes, of course. Of course I do. You hold great hope for this meeting, don't you? I can see no other hope for your planet. If the meeting should fail, then I'm afraid there is no hope. Oh, the lights. And we started again. It must be 12.30. Yes, exactly. Where are you going now? Back to the boarding house. I'll be safe there for the afternoon. I'll be able to keep an eye on Bobby. He's the only other person who knows about me. No. Wait a minute. There is someone else. How? They can't be. Tom. He was with me last night when Bobby told me what he saw. Well, of course, he doesn't know anything definite, and well, he talked to me first before... But then we can't take a chance, can we? Can you get in touch with him? I think so. I mean at once, now. I'll try. You will. You must. Oh, operator, I was connected with my party. Please, hello? Oh, is this Mr. Tom Stevens' office again? We were discon... Well, I must speak to Mrs... No, Mr. Stevens, yes, this is Mrs. Benson. Benson! Well, when do you expect him in, then? Well, will you tell him I called, and please, not to leave his office. I'm coming down to see him. Yes, yes, it's very important. To you, too. (laughs) 
Margaret, this is Mr. Stevens. I just got in. Now, listen, call the Pentagon. Who? Mrs. Benson, when? Uh, well, yeah, n- never mind. This is more important. Listen. Now, call the Pentagon and find out who's in charge of the spaceman business. Whoever it is, I want to talk to him. Tom. Call me back right away and don't take any other calls. I'll brush them off fast. Tom, I've been trying to get you all afternoon. I've got some pretty terrific news about your good friend, Mr. Carpenter. What about him? He's the man from the spaceship. I had that diamond or whatever it is checked at three different places. Nobody on Earth's ever seen a stone like that. And after what Bobby's told us, that's enough for me. Why is it nobody knows about this Mr. Carpenter? Why hasn't he got any money? All right, Tom. It's true. How do you know? You've just got to promise me you won't say a word to anybody. Oh, nobody but the Pentagon. Please, Tom. Are you crazy? After what happened today, he's a menace. You don't understand. You don't realize how important this is. Important? Of course it's important, and we can do something about it. You mustn't do anything about it, Tom. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. I say he is dangerous. It is our duty to turn him in. He isn't dangerous. He's... He isn't a menace. He... He told me what he came here for. Oh, honey, don't be silly because you happen to like the guy. Do you realize what this will mean for us? I'll be the biggest man in the country. I'll write my own ticket. Is that what you're thinking about? Listen, somebody's got to get rid of him. Tom, I'm not going to let you do it. Tom, don't... Hello, Margaret. Yeah. General Cutley? Good. Now, hold on. You don't know what you're doing. It isn't just you and Mr. Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter. It's everybody. The rest of the world is involved. I don't give a hang about the rest of the world. I'm in this for me. Tom. Now, you'll feel different when you see my picture in the papers. I feel different right now. Well, you'll see. You're going to marry a hero. I'm not going to marry anybody. Not even a hero. Hey, Helen. Uh, uh, hello? General Cutler? Uh, General, my name is Tom Stevens, uh, with a V. Yeah. I, I have positive information about the spaceman and where he's staying. Right. Yeah, yeah of course I'm sure. He is living in a boarding house at 1615 M Street, Northwest. That is correct, gentlemen. Yes, I have all of it now, Mr. Stevenson. Thank you very much indeed. I want to talk to you further, but I haven't time now. We want to act on this. Yes, sir? Have Colonel Ryder deploy all Zone 5 units according to Plan B immediately. Investigate 1615 M Street, Northwest, for presence of spaceman. Repeat. Carpenter. Right here. Did you see Tom? What does he say? It's no good. It's too late. I've got a taxi outside. Hurry. Attention Zone 5. Attention Zone 5. Man and woman observed entering taxi at 1615 M Street Northwest. Man is probably Klaatu, alias Carpenter. Establish roadblocks according to plan Baker and maintain station. Remain on radio alert until further orders. I don't know. I think we may have been seen getting into the taxi. Where can you go? I'm sure Barnhart can arrange to hide me until the meeting tonight. Where's it going to be? At the ship. Now, look there. Army cars. Full troops in full gear. The alarm is out, all right. It's only a few more blocks to Professor Barnhart's. I'm worried about Gort. I'm afraid of what he might do if anything should happen to me. Gort? But he's a robot. He's a product of centuries of refinement. But what could he do without you? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the Earth. And the city is swarming with patrol cars, hunting you. How can we tell them? They won't listen. You must listen. If anything happens to me, you must go to Gort. You must give him this message. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. 
Gort. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Say it. Gort. Klaatu Barada... Nikto. Gort. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Remember those words. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Thank you for choosing Tropical Daiquiris. How can I help you? Yes, I'd like four bushwhackers, please. That's four bushwhackers? That'll be $22.95, please fill around. Here you go. Now this is what we call a daiquiri here in Louisiana. And it's one of the best places ever because you don't have to get out of the car. You can just drive right on through. Oh, and the look on that lady's face, that was priceless. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm Justin, the ghoul man Redman, and I'm joined by Tommy and our alien friends. We've been driving around all of Mandeville. Uh, we have gave the cops a scare. We've had Mandeville PD chase us, St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Department pull us, or try to pull us over for speeding, and uh, they just can't keep up. They're in shock, so I expect in the morning we're going to be a pretty popular on the news, and uh, it'd be crazy to see if uh, St. Tammany Parish decides to create their UFO task force now because we just gave them a run for their money. So tonight we've been talking about the discovery or the whistleblower of UFO and that we have intact machines in our possession, which uh, I'm pretty certain if they uh, paid attention down here, they would get one now. But what do we really know about Grush? And like I said, he, he, he's he got the, the credentials. He has the clearances. And he decides to, you know, be a whistleblower. You know, I'm getting kind of tired of that word whistleblower. Whistleblower this, whistleblower that. You would sound like a new occupation here in the U.S. Like it's the most popular to be a whistleblower. Yeah, but when you blow the whistle, there are all kinds of things that happen. I mean, you, you get uh, retribution from your job. Uh, I mean, you go to the boss and tell him that, oh, um, yeah, we're actually been hiding the fact that there's a UFO or that we have a flying saucer or some kind of alien craft in a hangar on over here. And we've lied about it for like 50 years. What do you think your boss is going to do? And, you know, he, he's had where uh, he had issues with his clearances and things like that or be able to access information. Uh, once you go whistleblower, that's it. You don't really. I, I think it comes down to people don't like rats. Yeah. Snitches get stitches. Now, we've been flying around with our alien friends and uh, we've kind of discovered what their favorite movie is. The one that was broadcasted to them and come and had them come visit us. And that was that uh, movie, The Explorers. Ooh, I love that movie. Bunch of kids build them a rinky-dink spaceship, use a computer to create a force field, and then they travel to outer space, meet some aliens who live and breathe watching our TV. Now that's my kind of alien. That spaceship kind of reminds you of something, doesn't it? Most recent tragedy? Oh, dude, I can't believe you went there. I mean, the correlation's there. It's similar. So let's talk a little bit more about the Discovery Channel's UFO Declassified Live. Boy, Josh Gates and Jessica Chobot, they really got excited for it. They went all in on this show. I'm not a huge Josh Gates fan. Uh, something about his personality and something about the way he acts in his shows just 
eh. I'm not saying he's a bad man. I don't really see any of his political comments. But you just got that feeling like something is just off with this guy. Nevertheless, his shows are better produced than a lot of other shows. And when it comes to UFO declassified life, and it was great to see them bring out some experts like Jeremy Corbell, Nick Pope. Uh, uh, of course, the one doctor that I cannot even attempt to pronounce to say his name. Uh, he kind of brings in the nice, uh, the nice skeptic part to all of it. And to see George Knapp, and if you don't know who George Knapp is, George Knapp was Art Bell's guy, go-to guy for UFOs and anything in that category. George Knapp is an award-winning investigative journalist who spent, I don't know, since the 90s talking about UFOs and reporting on UFOs. He's got the contacts, he's got the sources. So if he backs Grush, then I support him on it. Then, So that makes me say this whistleblower is legit. Jeremy Corbell, I just recently learned about through this show, and I would like to see them do this like once a year, the U, uh, like like Shark Week, and say we'll have like UFO Week on Discovery Channel because there's a lot of bad content out there when it comes to UFOs, and Discovery Channel's not going to be the 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 any different, but they do have some better shows. Uh, they got one I want to check out, like the UFO Files. Covering every, you know, UFOs for most every president. Uh, of course, this one's not going to be as updated because of Biden. But we, we, we got, uh, we, we get the hunt point. Just stay away from UFO hunters. That one is the worst. I mean, they do bring in their skeptic. And it seems to be like the formula for all these shows. You have to have the person who, who's the true believer. Then you got another person who's the skeptic that kind of rounds out the whole group to make it look like you're getting both sides. But we know it's all staged. We know we never really get in the end. So that's going to be the last I say about that. Um, here's what UFO Declassified got right. They built it up. They gave you all the information that was in the report. They discussed what could be possibly the the. The, uh, the unidentified aerial phenomenons, which we went back and looked at clutter, was birds, weather events, or uh, floating garbage bags or floating bags. So it was kind of weird to see that as uh, uh, radar detected this and we can't identify what it is. Or we were able to identify it, but uh, it was a, a bag floating around. That, to me, fi I find is kind of funny. Uh, little things like that. They also got right... Uh, what is it? Is this a threat to us? Is it a national security threat? What is it? And the most consensus was, well, if it wanted to attack us, and even though it's been hanging out over our secure sites, our Air Force bases, our military bases, any place that's got nuclear weapons, if they wanted to wipe us out, they would have already done it. If they wanted to attack, it would it have been done right now. So they just kind of uh, reconnaissance. And... Um, I think we're, what, 1947 to now? That's an awful long time. So, uh, what are we at? 75 years in World War II? But anyway, it, I kind of agree with them. If they really wanted to attack us, they would have already. Uh, I like that they did delve into some of the alien movies. Like we were just talking about, like Battleship and Aliens. And, uh, of course, they gave a few movies that I never heard of. But uh, they kind of agreed that it's kind of propaganda or maybe a way to desensitize the U.S. public so that when they're finally made public, 
we'll handle it better because the movie Men in Black said it best. Humans aren't ready for this. The movie Men in Black said it best. Humans are not ready for this. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up our movie The Day the Earth Stood Still here on Frightening Tales. Attention Zone 5. Taxi cab moving north on 14th Street from Harvard Street. Man and woman in back seat. License number H0012. H0012. Section 2, close in. This is your target vehicle. We're hemmed in. Driver will get out here. I'm going to try to run for it. If they get me, you get to Gort. Now. God, run! Never mind, I'll check the guy. Marana, Nikto, Klatu, Marana, Nikto, Klatu. Centuries. Ages of superhuman, superplanetary skill had bred intuition and a dim power of reason into the enormously complex intelligence inside of Gort's metal brain case. When Helen Benson stumbled up to the shed that housed the space machine, the guards were not there. Then she saw them. They were lying inside, their rifles fused and bent. Gort somehow knew that Klaatu was dead. Gort was already on the move. He was on the move toward Helen. No! No! God, no! The visor of his helmet was opening on that cosmic incandescence within, seething with world ruin, aiming impassively at Helen. God! God! Klaatu! Klaatu! Marana! Marana! Helen Benson fainted. When she returned to consciousness, she was lying on a dais bathed in a soft, shadowless light in a chamber vaguely circular of completely unfamiliar build. She was in the space machine. Across the room stood Gort with his back to her and lying in front of him on a platform was Klaatu. Mr. Carpenter. Gort, the machine, the automaton, was applying electrodes to his master and a piercing, whining, maddening sound filled the ship. Klaatu moved. He sat up. Stood up. Mr. Carpenter. Hello. I... I thought you were... I was. They took me to an emergency hospital at the city jail. Gort broke in and took me back here. This technique can restore life in some cases, only for a limited time. How long? No one can tell. Time enough and more for me to go outside and speak to Professor Barnhart's scientists. I must speak to them. It's what I came for. Gort will put out the ramp. 
people of Earth, you men of science, you are here from all over your world, Europe, Asia, representing many nations, many ideas. I am leaving soon. You will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day. Where I come from, we believe there must be security for all, or no one is secure. This does not mean giving up any freedom except the freedom to act irresponsibly. This is the message that I ask you to take back when you return to your native lands. Tell your people and your governments that we have created a race of robots whose function it is to patrol the planets and spaceships and preserve the peace. At the first sign of treachery, they will act automatically. Nothing you have here on Earth can stop them. The penalty for provoking their action is too terrible to risk. Your choice is simple. Live in peace or perish in violence. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. Gort Baringo. Remember. I'll remember, Mr. Carpenter. seen him come, so did they see him depart, and the people of the earth pondered upon the warning. That concludes tonight's episode of Frightening Tales. I hope you enjoyed The Day the Earth Stood Still. And before we begin the broadcast, the uninterrupted broadcast of War of the Worlds, let me give you a sneak peek of what's coming in up of Frightening Tales. I'm investigating a connection between Bram Stoker and Jack the Ripper. Now, this is a big, long rabbit hole, so you can expect that episode in August. Not to mention July is Seafest, because they finally set the date for Shark Week, so that means we get to have all kinds of fun with sea creatures, sea monsters, sea stories, and all. Including, once again, I got my top six best shark movies ever. And trust me, these are not, <laughs> trust me, these are borderline bad movies. But I had so much fun reviewing movies like Sharktopus and Sharknado that, hey, I feel like this is going to become an annual tradition. So you would definitely want to stick around for all of July and see what we have here on Frightening Tales. If you have a story, a lead, or anything you'd like me to check out, send me an email, kghoulradio at gmail.com. This is your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man Redman, and Tommy, signing out.
the broadcasting system and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creature's that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campancita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, 
like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm, I'm, I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. Ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I'll ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor. Would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. They... Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. Well, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners... How far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. 
Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson... Could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millette and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I... Yes, that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious, 
spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, 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 would you mind standing one side, please, while the police are pushing the crowd back? Here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmoth, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmoth, and then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's someone? quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene... Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. The car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the objects have buried. Now, some of the more daring souls now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal chain. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical oh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and the thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Keep off! The top's loose! Look out, Dad! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous discs. The eyes, it might be a face. Might be almost But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body. Now it's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is that's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, those quiver and pulsate and... Monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's 
rising up now, and the crowd falls back. There's seen plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. How the hell is caught up by the woods of fires that... The gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith, commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault,
crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That, that is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., the office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, vice president in charge of operations. We have received a request from the state militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh, 
We ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior... Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English... French and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voiced the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. 
Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Marstown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! Fire! Forty yards to the right, sir. Ship range, thirty-one meters. Thirty-one meters. Projection, thirty-seven degrees. Thirty-seven degrees. Fire. Hit, sir. Got the tripod of one of them. That's off. The others are trying to repair Quick, it. Quick, get the range. Shift, fifty, thirty meters. Thirty meters. Projection, twenty-seven degrees. Twenty-seven degrees. Fire. Can see the shell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the range. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. 23 meters. Projection, 22 degrees. 22 Army bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Volt commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Volt reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. 
Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. Four hundred. Two hundred. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. Spraying us with flame. Two thousand feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use Route 7, 23... 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. QX to L calling CQ to X to L calling CQ to X to L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor. All, 
all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise in crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the... The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five... Five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, waiting... Waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them. Dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. Uh, a hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill. 
small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present. Furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars, but... To write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here in their wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. Some reason I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north, I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy, the silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse, deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock, the arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. City 
vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its building strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. It rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from... from many places. A long time ago from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did we hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They've gone over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see him. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Hmm. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic, like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our... Rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. 
And we've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got to, that, that's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning. Afraid they'd get canned if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays. Worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs. They'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, beings. they will. There's men who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me by... Meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weaklings. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee. Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You, me, a few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube... Anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s, stood alone on Times Square, Caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. 
Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder, past silent shop windows, displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal... Titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space... No life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But a remote dream may be. May be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. <laughs> This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. 
The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations coast to coast has brought you The War of the World by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.